0: Hi everyone, welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Jonathan Dickstein. Jonathan is an intermediate level certified Iyengar yoga instructor and graduate student currently researching South Asian religious traditions, the question of animals and religion, and comparative ethics. He received his M.A. in Religious Studies from the University of Colorado at Boulder and is presently a Ph.D. student in Religious Studies with a focus in South Asia at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Jonathan is here today to talk with me about animals and God, very juicy subjects. So hello, Jonathan. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: So it's a, it's a pleasure to chat with you today, and um, I just completed reading your very interesting article, The Strong Case for Vegetarianism in Patanjali Yoga. So we're going to talk about that quite a bit today, as well as your thoughts on Ishvara. But before we start all that, can we just get a little bit of, a, um, uh, maybe a, a little bit about your story and what you, led you to the work that you do and your own personal practice? Sure.
1: Sure. Um... I think I originally came to yoga, like a lot of people came to yoga, and I mean asana yoga, um, as someone who had done sports and was interested in physical well-being and so on, and um, kind of just stumbled into vinyasa yoga, like many people did kind of in the the early uh, 2000s. And it was only a little bit later, uh it was only a little bit later that because of my background, my undergraduate background, um is in philosophy mostly and just my interest in philosophy overall, that like most people who I think are interested in philosophy, once they get involved in something, they then start to like want to look a little bit behind the curtain, see what's going on, you know, that as many people find the instructors saying things that they don't understand, words in Sanskrit. And, ideas about minds and bodies and liberation and all these things, <laughs> you know, and people have no you know, and some people take that bait and some don't um, And so then I just started to kind of get more and more interested uh, in that subject and then After reading a lot of the same material that a lot of people read in in English I started realizing that kind of a, a knowledge of Sanskrit also was necessary to really understand what was going on, at least the working knowledge. And I mean, I could give the whole story, but then just the dominoes start to kind of fall. um, And you start to yoga ethics, yoga theology, things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think that the developing a knowledge of Sanskrit did for your understanding of the practice and the philosophy? Like what what layer of um, richness, if we can use that word, does it add to um, the knowledge of the tradition?
1: Well, I I think that at least what I tended to find out that when I was reading, say, translations of the Yoga Sutra, as an example, Mm -hmm. um, you could put down a number of translations. And oftentimes, uh, practitioners, myself included, gravitate towards one translation over another. But I realized that I gravitate or attracted to that for nothing that has to do with the text itself. It has to do with my own, say, disposition at that moment in time, that orientation towards yoga. So maybe I like a more like poetic reading, or maybe I like a more analytic reading. And then I realized later that then, the one that I am attracted to has very little relationship to that text itself. And we could talk about the problems with the notion of the text itself as well. But, But then I thought, well, maybe at least I should know enough Sanskrit to be able to then look at the original and see where these translations are coming from. And like many people who um, can even look at different translations, you find sometimes whole words, whole phrases that are in some translations that are not in others, and we start to wonder why they're there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, I feel like the the general kind of climate in the yoga community, I feel like, is to to appropriate the text in a way that sort of works for you. You know, we have this sort of like spirit of individualism in our culture where people are inclined to just like you're saying, sort of cherry pick those things that like feel good to me rather than do the hard work of really allowing, you know, the text itself and, and what we might say was the original intent of the text to challenge me, to challenge my presuppositions, to, to challenge my own, you know, subjectivity in the context of the world and my upbringing and so on and so forth. So what are your thoughts on that kind of, um, uh, we might say, sort of individualized A way of approaching the the yoga sutras or other ancient texts from the yoga tradition in in relation to the work that you're trying to do especially with this article which I think is is quite on the other end of the spectrum in that it's it's saying no let's look at let's look and be really honest about what the text says in terms of vegetarianism and then and then go from there
1: well I think uh, the last thing you mentioned I agree with like a level of honesty Um, which doesn't mean that it necessarily prescribes anything after the fact. What what I mean by that is that we can look at the text honestly and as much as possible, kind of remove our stakes in it beforehand as much as possible, and then see what um, the text in that way is saying or a certain individual is saying or, or anything of that matter, and then, then we can start to orient, orient ourselves towards it. And, and so I'm not trying to say that once we find what the text says, this is what we definitely do. Right. It means that um, when I take a certain kind of, say, creative license with a sutra or with a text or with yeah. a verse and I present it to others, am I being honest that my presentation is a creative interpretation? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think what we tend to do is we like to rely on this quote unquote yoga tradition or classical yoga tradition for some kind of authority, mm-hmm. some kind of authenticity. So it's kind of like we want to have it both ways. You know what I mean? And and I'm more of the school of, I mean, it depends on how I guess a certain kind of yoga community orients themselves to a text or a tradition. But I would say that if you want to present a creative understanding of a text or a verse or whatever, then There should be honesty about how you're presenting it, and you don't need to lean on that authority unless that authority is a kind of bedrock in your community, and then there might be a little bit of a dilemma.
0: Yeah. So then how do you feel about um, approaching a text, sort of extracting from a text what? what makes sense given your kind of cultural framework and then letting the rest of it go and kind of ignoring the rest of it because it doesn't jive. Do you feel like that is an okay practice or do you think that the the text itself needs to be uh, appealed to as a kind of, um, I don't know, a holistic representation of uh, the tradition in that one text?
1: I mean, I think a lot of the times um, it depends on whether we're really in it for transformation or not in some ways. If if I'm willing to be challenged by a text and rethink my life, rethink my decisions, rethink um, my ethical behavior, or maybe my lack of ethical behavior, um, if I'm in it for transformation, then I will take those seriously and and make changes. Mm-hmm. If I'm not in it for that, and I'm basically trying to just use a different vocabulary to describe my life, but basically say, stay the same person, mm-hmm. You know, where I'm just translating into another vernacular,
2: yeah. but
1: I'm not letting myself be affected and changed. Um, I don't know. I think that's a different enterprise.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm glad that you said that. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your article. So one of the things that, um, you know, I find most interesting about this article is how you engage the text. The, is it the most appropriate? What's the most appropriate way to refer to it? The Patanjala Yoga Shastra? which includes the sutras and the commentary. Is that sort of the appropriate way to refer to it?
1: I, I personally think that is the um, best way to relate to it, especially given the work um, that many of your listeners may be familiar with of Philip Moss and some others who do uh, modern yoga research uh, who deal with the transmission of the Yoga Sutra and the fact that um, the text is historically transmitted as a unified text sutras and basha. Um, and that while most yoga practitioners, I think myself and modern yoga practitioners are given actually the sutras in isolation, and then maybe at some point in the future even get to reading the commentary, um, it's more so the case that uh, odds are the case that the text is a unified text, basha and sutra, and then later on the sutras are just kind of plucked out. So uh, we can talk about um, I mean, whether we want to talk about it, the Yoga Sutra, I, I'll, I'll be referencing the commentary as well, or Yoga Shastra. But I, I think Patanjali Yoga Shastra is probably the... A
0: good preferred. way to... Put, okay. Well, just And just to clarify to, for for the listeners who aren't familiar, you, when you're referring to Philip Moss's um, work, you're referring to the fact that he argues that uh, Patanjali and Vyas were essentially the same person and that the sutras and the commentary were written at the same time, correct?
1: Yes. and And... You know I think even within that there's kind of um, you know a little wiggle room in the sense that uh, not knowing if there was pre-existent sutras that this Patanjali slash Vyasa um, organized and then kind of brought in a commentary to elucidate them or I, I like to think sometimes like this Patanjali is like curating
2: mm-hmm.
1: sutras and and bringing them forth um, I think regardless of whether we're going to make the case that it's one and the same person or not, um, I I think it makes sense that the yoga shastra is the work of a single, I think Ma says, like a single authorial intention.
2: Mm, mm.
1: Best at it that way. Um, and then I would add that even if we don't accept that, and I think someone like Edwin Bryant, he agrees with it, which is like a softer position, which is a position I would, you know, I'm very... Uh, amenable towards, is the idea that even if we don't, say, buy in 100% with that former position, I think it makes sense only to consider that, to understand that our understanding of the Yoga Sutra comes through the Vashya. Like, we only understand what the sutras mean, given the explanation of the, quote-unquote, Vyasa Bhashya. Yeah. And so, I think the Bhashya is the best way to interpret the text, and I find it a little odd that we understand the sutras through the basha and then we want to say Throw out the basha but keep the sutras. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 so
1: that that's
0: where I'd be on that. Okay, thank you for highlighting that. So then, yeah. So one of the interesting things about the article is that I I li- I really appreciate the way you engage the text in a way that engage highlights and explores con- uh, contemporary ethical issues. You know, this in this particular um, instance being vegetarianism and uh, the treatment of animals, which is obviously a hot topic. So is this uh, just specific to the article, or do you sort of is this kind of reflective of your own preferred method in approaching? These texts.
1: Um, wait, in which way exactly? So,
0: is power? are you do you f- do you feel a kind of call to um, relate ancient texts to contemporary issues in this kind of way, or was this is this just a specific, is this yes. just an individual kind of focus for you?
1: What what I found that I think that in the history of both Western philosophy and in uh, I won't say Eastern, I'll just say Indian philosophy. Is that there seems to be a dilemma of how to deal with non-human animals ethically. There's there's a, a big dilemma, we don't know what to do with them because we understand instinctually, reflectively, emotionally that that non-human animals are not like rocks, they're not like plants, you know, they're not they're not inanimate objects. I mean, all of us intuit even a child intuits that animals can be harmed um and that's just one example and so i found it very interesting because when i got involved in yoga and i became a vegetarian i remember the moment when it was it had nothing to do with animals whatsoever i i knew that this was some kind of ethic that i should practice as a yoga practitioner if i wanted yoga to, quote, like, to work, right? If <laughs> I want magic to work. Um, but I never really thought about the ethic in itself. Um, but then when I started to think more about ahimsa and think about non-human animals, you start to think about how, yes, violence most certainly can be done towards non-human animals. And the Yoga Sutra's Bhasha, on its on its verse, on ahimsa, specifically and almost almost exclusively talks about animals. So just to kind of tie that up is the idea that in the mind of the commentator of the Yoga Sutra, when nonviolence was being talked about, his like uh axiomatic example is non-human animals. So Mm -hmm. it must have been an issue just as much a controversial issue then as it is now. And even before the Yoga Sutra, when you talk about Vedic sacrifice, you know, much you know, centuries and centuries before, even then, there is unbelievable dis ease with um, the relationships with animals and the violence done to them.
0: Mm. Okay, so I want to sort of um, go a little bit tangential just for a moment because I want to talk about. I want to back up a little bit and talk about something you um, discuss before you start to hash out the arguments for vegetarianism, which is the three yogas uh, or possibly more in the sutras. And uh, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I, you know, I, I like to bring it up just because you know you hear many practitioners almost exclusively referring to. Just the Ashtanga Yoga as the kind of the, the yoga of the sutras, and not really reflecting upon or mentioning that, you know, there, there's two, three, possibly more. So, can you talk a little bit about the different yogas and the kind of controversy, controversy or confusion about how they relate and intersect?
1: Sure. Um, kind of maybe contrary to the way that we would organize a text ourselves, or we would start kind of at the most basic practice for the most kind of like a normal practitioner. Uh, The Yoga Sutra starts actually with the already advanced practitioner. Mm. Um, And it introduces and saying that, you know, this chapter is for the one of collected mind, the the Samadhi Pada. And it defines yoga as yoga's chitta vritti nirodaha. And the chapter is dedicated to that that goal and the entire text is dedicated to yoga shit vritti nirodaha the cessation of mental fluctuations um but the first chapter is already for someone of this kind of collected mind Mm. in the sense that they don't need to do the things that the second chapter is going to talk about
0: so they Um, could just read the first one and be like well i'm one of collected minds so i'm just going to stop here
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean fortunately when we practice we realize like oh maybe i'm one of those second chapter people (laughs) yeah (laughs) um and a lot of people think that that's actually, if we want to say something is like Patanjali Yoga, it's the first chapter of Yoga. Okay. And it's pretty much de- dedicated to one point of concentration. Actually, in the in the commentary on the first sutra of the text, it says Yoga ha Samadhi. Yoga is samadhi. Mm-hmm. Yoga is samadhi. So, I mean, that's really the first chapter is focused on. And then um, the second chapter is introduced with the idea that it is. Now we're going to talk about yoga for persons of scattered mind, uncollected <laughs> mind. And everyone thinks, like, oh, now finally, uh, something for me. And then there is the yoga of action, the Kriya Yoga, that um, has three components that is introduced at the beginning of the second chapter, which very little is discussed. I mean, it's tapaha svadhyaya ishvara pranidhana ani kriya yogaha, um, tapas, austerity, svadhyaya, own study and uh, ishvara pranidhana devotion to god or devotion to ishvara and there's little spoken about that um, at the beginning of the second chapter and then later on just almost not out of the blue but oddly uh the text starts it talks about this ashtanga yoga this eight limbed or this yoga of eight auxiliaries or ancillaries are other terms that people have given to it um eight limbs, which is a kind of step-by-step uh, gradually ascending structure for the practice of yoga. Now, um, the, the problem is what we have is, I mean, the first chapter can kind of stand alone in its understanding of yoga. What we don't really know so much is how this Kriya yoga and this Ashtanga yoga interact. Mm. And while I think a lot of people have done some very ambitious, creative uh, gymnastics to... <laughs> weave them together, uh, I think it's better to think that Patanjali, as I've said, is a kind of curator, a compiler, and doing his best um, to accommodate a number of yogas existent at the time. Uh, And I don't really think there's a satisfying way to uh, reconcile the two yogas of the second chapter.
0: Okay, so what... Because the kriya, the kriya yoga, we can see it, you know, verbatim in as the part of the niyamas, correct? And so, wh- what are some or a couple of the arguments for why? I mean, how do these? I, I know you just you literally just said there's no satisfactory <laughs> way <laughs> to to combine them, but this has just always confused me. So, so is it that you know is it is it sort of in a sense that like you know the kriya yoga is for sort of the the second level of you know people who is sort of would all the rest is sort of assumed or they've like they've moved past all that and the three and the the kriya yoga is sort of like what they the, the the rest that they need to focus on i mean what what is the what is kind of your you know working theory as to how these two relate um or are they just totally just slopped in together two different yogas
1: I, I don't I mean some people will say that actually that the tapa the, the tapas Svadhyaya yeah. and ishvara Panhana in the kriya yoga isn't exactly the same kind that is now used as a niyama. Mm. Um, okay not exactly the same. Uh, it's hard to find that because you don't see that them described any differently in the right. text. Um, another example, I mean one of the common things someone will do and I, there's a times when I think it's reasonable. Is to say well the audience knew what kriya yoga was so that's why there's not a big explanation about it okay Um, i mean another great example is most of this text is talking about a chitta or a mind complex it would be great if in the sutras patanjali gave a definition of what the chitta is that so we can either say oh it was assumed by by the audience um Mm -hmm. but there are times i mean maybe we'll get to later when we're talking about ishvara where um for example Patanjali says, uh, he's talking about powers and he says, Tataha anima adi. He's like the powers beginning with minimization. Hmm. Which assumes that if you say et cetera, people know what you're talking about after the fact. I mean, it has yeah. to be kind of assumed. But in this situation, um, you know, I haven't looked at some of the more interesting ways people have reconciled these. I just, I don't find them satisfying. And then I would probably say as a blanket statement, I don't think it's helpful to look at the Yoga Sutra as a uh, watertight philosophy at all. It has numerous problems and shortcomings, even regarding certain conclusions I will make about the text that I think are not fully satisfying. Mm -hmm. And so I think we would have to zoom out and say, when were we ever given the idea that there is something called a classical yoga philosophy? and how many assumptions go into it um and i think this is one case where we might just want to say let's leave that for another day (laughs) and
0: yeah yeah and it's interesting because i like what you said about you know why why do we assume that this you know it's it's sort of problematic to assume that this is going to be a watertight text because also you know that the idea that you know that a f- philosophical text should be kind of watertight and logically coherent at every, you know, juncture is kind of our, you know, o- own scar, right? That's like our way, that's our tradition um, uh, of, 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 of writing text. So imposing that upon it in our own interpretation is somehow
1: problematic, right? Yeah, and we can just say this is the shortcoming of the text. I mean, yeah. there's no reason why we can't say this is a fault of right. the text, but there might not be a lot of, extremely useful or um, insightful inspirational aspects of the text you know it's not an either or
0: right right okay interesting okay so take us through you know you've talked about sort of the general your general idea of um uh the the yoga shastra supporting you know this nonviolence towards animals but can you take us a little more closely through the arguments for vegetarianism that you outline in your paper
1: sure um well the the paper's called The Strong Case for Vegetarianism in uh, Patanjala Yoga, and at the beginning I say, well, here are some not strong arguments, meaning arguments that are also used, um, such as arguments from Compassion in the uh, Mayatri Karuna Sutra 133, um, and, uh, uh, yeah, 133, and I don't think those work. And yet we do have a very, very clear definition um, when the text talks about the yamas in Ashtanga yoga, right? And we should, we should understand that also, that they are um, gradual, they are progressive steps. Um, and so it's odd also that we don't teach yama in yoga communities first, right? We, we don't teach it first, even though Patanjali is clearly teaching it first, clearly teaching it first. Um, and... At that point, you have the five yamas non-violence, non violence, uh, non lying or truthfulness, non stealing, uh, celibacy. I know we like to translate that differently, but um, <laughs> yes, uh, we uh, do. Aparigraha, <laughs> uh, non grasping are the five uh, uh, yamas. And it's important to note that in the commentary stipulates that, that actually there are five yamas, but ahimsa is the root, it's like the main. Um, restraint and the others are only taught in order to teach it like they're only versions of it in a way Uh, and then following that sutra that's at 230 then at 231 the otherwise I I mention this a lot otherwise very diplomatic Patanjali I mean in, in the first chapter Patanjali gives a list of things you can meditate on and then at the end he just says like whatever you want you know, whatever gets you concentrating, like, whatever, I gave you some ideas, now it's your choice. Uh, 231, I mean, he he says, Jati mm-hmm. these yamas are the great vow, they are not exempted by class, place, time, or circumstance, they are universal. So, in the discussion of Ahimsa itself, and referring to this sutra particularly, the commentary says that you can't say things like, I'm only going to eat animals on this day, but not others. Or I'm only going to do it in the context of sacrifice, kill animals in the sacrifice and not others. Um, The commentary says that even the fisherman who says, I fish, it's part of my occupation. This is the reference to jati in the verse. Um, so that makes it that makes it okay. Because I only do it for my livelihood. Patanjali, who's otherwise very flexible, says, no, 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 none of these, none of these are outside the umbrella of uh, nonviolence. Now, what we don't get in that sutra or those two sutras is what violence means, and hence what nonviolence means. So I In in another article, I I think I remember reading something that was in a yoga journal or something about the yamas, and it was saying Patanjali doesn't tell us what to do. He talks about nonviolence, but not what to do. Mm -hmm. But in Sutra 231, he talks about slaughter, for sacrifice, for consumption, for livelihood, and says, no, these are all off off the table. And then at Sutra uh, 234, a little bit later, um, he goes on to say that nonviolence are acts not only done by oneself, but done on one's behalf and approved of, kind of sanctioned. Um, so you can see how that net actually gets cast quite wide mm. when we start to think about that logically. Mm. Uh, so, in that respect, um, The examples continually throughout the text are about flesh, animal flesh, and skins, you know, and uh, because those obviously require, in 99% of cases, actually slaughtering an animal for that. But as I outlined in that paper, too, um, we can easily extend that to any uh, forced breeding, any confinement, any manipulation, mutilation. Um, And eventual killing of animals as well, which is involved in things beyond flesh, including uh, dairy products, eggs, um, a number of the way that animals are used for entertainment, uh, for labor. So that's just kind of a general outline of the situation.
0: I see. So then what would be um, a Patanjali, from your perspective, based response to the idea that, okay, well, harming implies that, you know, there's some kind of unjust way of processing, blah, blah, blah. And that if we just, if we ethically killed them, you know, if if we did it in a way that didn't cause harm or there was no pain, then that could be, that sort of could fit within this, you know, system that you're laying out. What would the response be to that?
1: Well, I think what's interesting, uh, I'm kind of going to come at this from an oblique angle a little bit is right after ahimsa we have satya right which is truthfulness mm-hmm. and the commentary on that says yes their truthfulness as well is not to be violated at all unconditionally however if there is a conflict between satya and ahimsa you should always favor ahimsa so just because I'm, I'm hiding people in my basement who are hiding from an unjust regime, the regime comes to my house, they ask me where, if the people right. are here, if they're in my basement, that I'm bound by nonviolence more than I'm bound by satya. Mm. Okay? Um, and so what that also indicates is that it's not actually just because I'm killing, because I wouldn't say in a way because, killing those individuals myself, but I would be permitting it, I would be approving of it, I would be facilitating it. Mm -hmm. So I would say that in the situation you're describing, now if we go into two cases where we have to balance like two ahimsa or two himsas, right? So what if the animals were not harmed as badly as they are in 99.9% of the cases, which I think people should recognize that about 99% of all the animals that they consume or may consume in products come from awful places. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so we also have to be careful about kind of like looking into this kind of fairy tale situation that sure. doesn't exist. But yeah. to get to your point, um, I would still say that that kind of, if we start at that logic, if we start from the logic of treatment, like if only we treated them better, it assumes that using them at all is justified. And so we have to first figure out whether or not using the animals at all is justified. Right. And only if we can answer affirmatively to that, then we can start to talk about then levels of treatment. Do you follow what I'm saying so far? Definitely, yeah. So so I would say that in a situation where using animals, for food and labor and entertainment is completely avoidable and unnecessary in the vast majority of cases, the violence that is, um, enacted just by using them Mm -hmm. at all outweighs anything that we could say offer on the other hand. Now, people at this point like to go into like very, you know, once again, very marginal cases, like I'm on a deserted Island (laughs) with a cow. I don't know. You know, some people think, well, I'm just going to eat what the cow eats. <laughs> but the, you know, th- these become, they're very, they're not relevant. And and I think a piece that you mentioned earlier, I talk about, you know, modern yoga practitioners are not in these situations, you know, the vast majority of them, especially mm. Western practitioners. So we tend to do this kind of, uh, how would I say, um, insincere gesture towards marginal cases to justify the anything but marginal cases that we live with on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. So, um, you know, I appreciate, we're sort of talking about this, but I appreciate your point um, that you make at the end of the essay that, you know, not everyone's going to feel compelled by these arguments if they don't appeal to this text as the foundation of their sadhana. And I think, you know, one of your points is that many contemporary practitioners do while still ignoring, you know, the vegetarian bit that you're that you've been arguing f- for. So, what are your thoughts on this? I know, you know, you say that um, that <clears throat> towards the end of the essay that this would challenge one's ability to even say that they are practicing Patanjali yoga. Do you do you stand by that hard claim?
1: I I do think that if we're talking about the kind of, I mean if we mean what we say, it kind of it comes down to that, right? If we mean what we say, and then we do what we mean, and we think that's important. And the first rung of Patanjali's Ashtanga Yoga is basic ethical dispositions, and we discard them, especially when he is extremely firm in the necessity of performing them. Um, and there are, there are many other... Uh, contemporary yoga teachers who have tried to come back to yama and really emphasize it among their practitioners. Whether or not that's been heeded or not by the teachers and students themselves is a different question. But I I would first say that yes, I I think that it is important not to exploit the name classical yoga or Patanjali's yoga for the sake of this um, aura of authenticity. Um, of this aura of kind of ageless yoga tradition mm-hmm. and i would i would think that i mean the flip side of that is i don't think there's a need for practitioners to rely on that um for them to have valuable and worthwhile sabnas the difficulty is i think if you go to pretty much most teacher trainings anywhere i know in the united states and you look at their modules on yoga philosophy they're going to be talking about the yoga sutras um, my experience, you might have a little bit from the, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika and the Bhagavad Gita. But there's a lot in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika that is not talked about. Yes. That people would be very surprised if they started to read the chapter on mudras and other things and really yeah. got into it. So I think we should start to ask, like, what are we either consciously, subconsciously trying to gain trying to benefit from, by these invocations of certain traditions, and why do we think we need them, and is it coming from a good place, an honest place, mm. and and if someone says no, I, I actually have read, say, the Yoga Shastra, some of it, and it very much resonates with me, and I want to follow this certain practices, then I, I think it is important to, um, you know, learn from our teachers, as it were, you know, or learn from that, that guiding source in this context.
2: Mm.
0: Now even though you know you you make a point of saying that the the essay the point that you're getting at is not exactly about you know why um why one needs to be a vegetarian I still thought it was interesting that you point out that it's not necessarily because it's some sort of like abstract moral virtue but that it's it's almost it's almost based on a kind of you know individual you know it's it's about your personal practice it's like in, in order for me to be uh, to cultivate a sattvic state i can't, i have to be a vegetarian you know which is like not really about the animals right it's more about me so which i think is interesting because you know it it's because most people, when they approach vegetarianism, it's really about, you know, it's morally, and this there's a sort of transcendental morality about, um, about you know, not about the ethical treatment of al- animals, whereas this is where really, it's like, no, this is like, it's just practical. Like, if you want to cultivate this Sattvic state, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I'm interested for you to, if you want to unpack that a little more. I know that you just sort of bring that up in the article. You don't really go too deeply in it, but I thought it was really interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a very uh, a very tricky topic because it is a criticism waged um, not just against the Yoga but also early Buddhism and Jain traditions as well as you know all of these practices are very much self-centered mm-hmm. and I mean that in a kind of literal sense like organized around my own salvation. Yeah, I'm only doing these practices for my own salvation. In that way, I'm using salvation meaning moksha, you yeah. know, yeah. type of yeah. Um, And so, yes, in the way in which it's framed in the Yoga Sutra, meaning the reason why you would do these things is to transform your consciousness, right? The last verse of the third chapter talks about how when the intellect becomes as clear as if it were the purusha, as if it were the self. Then there's kaivalya. Then there's liberation. So it's a constant sadhafizing process. Yeah. So that that is completely a legitimate claim. Now, what, what that doesn't do is affect the force of one's need to be to practice nonviolence. You know, it, now it it doesn't change that fact. That's just one reason why it becomes absolutely necessary. Now, the other question is you might not be doing it for the animals in themselves according to this structure. That's possible. But that doesn't address the question of whether the animals matter. And what I mean by that is do they matter morally in themselves? And there's a great uh, book um, by Christopher Frameron called Hinduism and Environmental Ethics where he talks about, and he gives a very convincing argument that the the idea that ahimsa can be a virtue and can be an ethic and can actually promote this kaivalya only makes sense if animals in themselves matter as if it matters how we treat them because if i mean it gives a more kind of sophisticated uh, explanation but just that idea that it, it would only make sense that we it's a virtuous act not to harm animals if they in themselves matter mm-hmm. and i think if we step outside because because some people will say you know what You know jonathan i hear what you're saying and and this and that but fine i don't care about Patanjali yoga anymore you know i don't i don't care if i'm following that um you know i'm not from the fifth century i'm not indian you know x y and z and and i really have no kind of strong aversion to that the problem is is that you're still stuck by ethical problems or stuck with ethical problems And if animals matter according in the Indian context or in the kind of Western secular ethical context, if they matter at all, then whatever that means, it has to mean that kind of frivolous violence against them isn't justified. Yeah, I mean, and most of us would agree with that. That's what's kind of the striking thing is that um, the vegetarian, I would probably argue more the more kind of vegan imperative. we, We already agree with it, actually. We already agree that frivolous violence against sentient beings is to be avoided. Yeah. Um, it's just we stop when it starts to butt against our habits. Yeah. But the Yoga Sutra itself is trying to have us probe our habits. Yeah. And and change our habits.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, okay, so now two potential rebuttals. One would be, you know, okay, well, you've said that um we've we've already talked about how the 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 yoga shastra is not exactly a airtight text there's some inconsistencies blah 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 and i'm more inclined to the kriya yoga system and the kriya yoga system doesn't talk about the treatment of animals so why then you know according to your argument can i not call myself a patanjali yogi in the kriya yoga vein
1: sure um so I do reference this at one point, I believe, in, in that article, is that if, as we said at the beginning, we're viewing, and I say if, we're viewing the three yogas, the uh, sattvic yoga, the chitta-vritti-nirodha yoga, and then the kriya yoga, and the ashtanga yoga, it's three yogas, all kind of working along, the kind of very adept to the middling, as they translate it sometimes, or the less adept in this life.
0: Yoga for dummies.
1: Yeah, something like this.
0: I think there is that book.
1: So the the idea that ethical prescriptions and proscriptions are required for the quote unquote dummies or the kind of lower rung practitioners, but they are not expected to be performed by the higher rung practitioners, strikes me as a little bit odd. You know, it strikes me as a as a bizarre Kind of system where somehow cultivating nonviolence was absolutely necessary to say make the mind more sattvic, um for those practitioners, but somehow when you're a more adept practitioner, you do those things, and it and it has and it's not required at all. Now I'm not saying that actually these arguments can't be made. I think that in in like a tantric context, those arguments can be made. But I would say we have to be careful about trying to smuggle like tantra tantric um, yeah. perspectives in to do our dirty work <laughs> and, and I think that 's what we do i mean i 've done it itself is like we always um, like to have the arguments both ways you know um, we want to we want to stay true to say the Patanjali yoga, but then when it talks about celibacy, we then kind of talk about a parallel or a, like a thousand year old later tradition and mm-hmm. And we try to make it make it work um, in a certain way. And, and as we started, I have really not some strong aversion to employing different perspectives. Um, I think there is a problem with trying to convince ourselves that it is sanctioned by that text or that classical yoga is sanctioning it. Um, and like I said, at that point, if we want to just kind of throw classical yoga off our backs and say, you know what, fine, I'm not going to, teaching even anymore in my class. I'm not going to quote the ethical sutras, this and that. I think that's fine um, in a certain way. It's just, are we being honest in our presentation and in our own practices in that
0: respect? Yeah. Okay. So now the next question that I have is, um, and I want to sort of wrap the, this converse, part of the conversation up in the next couple of questions so we can talk about Ishvara. But um, the, you wrote an article for Elephant Journal that was really interesting because you mentioned a common rebuttal to you know this claim about strict vegetarianism um within the context of yoga practice is that the the rebuttal is is basically citing Arjuna as a figure you know in the Bhagavad Gita for those who are not familiar practicing a morally permissible form of violence and then you disagree with that claim on a number of different grounds so can you go into that a little bit
1: uh yes i i think that um, and I, I've heard this a lot. I, actually, it's one of those things that never... Stops. <laughs> yeah, but it never appeared to me personally. Oh, really? Okay. I started hearing it. Like, it never occurred to me to make a kind of lateral move and to talk about... Um, so I'm a like a white, almost middle-aging male in the You United. are not middle-aged. Middle-aging, <laughs> approaching, rounding up. I'm you must rounding. be younger
0: than me. No. <laughs> I'm
1: rounding up uh and and I'm going to now say that my situation is like that of a warrior on a battlefield deciding to choose between killing gurus or letting his own family die um which has a completely different dharmic situation um the character in Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita is not bound by non-violence. I mean, he is a warrior. He participates in violence as a warrior. I mean, the, the conflict in the Gita for Arjuna is not that he has to fight in a war. He's used to fighting in wars. It's the problem of having to choose between his family or his gurus and the fact that doing... Out of a kind of dharmic necessity, right? Or as, as Krishna urges him to fight, means that he has to do that and fight against and eventually you know, kill his, his gurus. Um, this has very little relevance to the situation that modern yoga practitioners find themselves in. Um, not not and so the one point is the, the dharmic difference. I mean, there's a few points I list, but I think the main ones are that this dharmic difference. And then also the fact is that once again, we are in this very, very marginal case. We are in a situation that has no relevance. It, it's yeah. like saying that because in a time of need and my family might starve, I might steal food. And because of that, then at any time, stealing is acceptable. Right. Right. Mm. So we're not in that situation, dharmically, historically, uh, physically. Uh and, and I think that, once again, um, because we have so much invested in our habits, um, not just our eating habits for ourselves, but how much they're tied to our families, how much they're tied to traditions, how much they're tied to so much that it's hard to just stop and consider the arguments on their own. And it's easier than to like, quickly try to locate some example and because it's from a text like the Bhagavad Gita, like, then, it'll, then it'll work. But I think once we calm down, we realize that it has very little application
0: in this situation. Mm, mm, good answer. Great. So, okay. So now, last question on this topic is uh, a provocative one. Are you ready? I am ready. <laughs> okay. Um, so do you practice a classical form of Ramacharya?
1: Do I practice a classical form of Ramacharya?
0: No. Okay. So then if one can, you know, take sort of poetic license with this, you know, with Brahmacharya, for example, which most of us do, then what is is the argument that uh, says that, you know, vegetarianism, non-harming, we can't take poetic license here and still call ourselves Patanjali yogis while taking poetic license with something like Brahmacharya?
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, there's, there's the first question of whether or not, you're asking me that question, whether I even say that I'm ascribing to-
0: Right, the, yeah, yeah, of course. The practitioner, right.
1: Um, I would say, as, as, um, personally, the, the problem is that, I would say that if we want to inspect the ethics of the Yoga Sutra itself, they might also have problems themselves, just as in yeah. their ethical formulation. And if we find them unsatisfactory, what happens then we're thrust into a world of just basic kind of moral philosophy
2: mm-hmm. and
1: secular ethics. The downside is, I think, that there is very little way to escape the imperative of nonviolence, specifically as manifested as veganism, once we start talking about secular ethics. Um, I've yet to hear any kind of legitimate um, arguments to the contrary. So that's an issue, is that kind of once we start to get out of that realm, we're not kind of making life any easier for us, at least in the sense of, by easy, we mean continuing our old habits.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the second key, I would say, is that I, I think we would like to. We should look at what are our justifications for this wiggle room, you know, and what is the downside of that wiggle room? So, so a lot of people, here's an example, will say, yes, I can understand why brahmacharya uh, exists because if practiced in a certain way, it can be violent towards others, or dishonest towards others, or disrespectful. But the way that I'm practicing it eliminates all those things Mm. in a certain way, which I, why I think it actually has credibility, right? Because, because if we just say like, no, just doing this act in itself is violent, seems kind of a little strange. Yeah. The problem is when we go into ahimsa, we, we can't, we don't really have that space anymore. I mean, we can start to have discussions about, oh yes, but I will quote-unquote humanely imprison animals and humanely slaughter animals but it's kind of an oxymoron
0: yeah
1: And we realize that the, the need for doing it doesn't really exist and it's easily avoidable and so just saying just as we have wiggle room here we should have wiggle room here doesn't when, when we look at it honestly and if we actually do think we do think that frivolous violence against animals um, should be avoided. We don't have a good justification for choosing that little space, that little wiggle room.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, great. So now let's talk about God. <laughs> so, you know, what what I thought was kind of interesting that sort of occurred to me when you were talking maybe before we started the conversation um, was that, you know, we're talking about animals and God to sort of two topics that we have a kind of troubled relationship with in our culture. And I'm just wondering if that's not, um, if that's not random, you know, do you have any thoughts on, you know, is, is there a connection between our troubled relationship with God and our troubled relationship with animals? According to your perspective?
1: I mean, I, I could probably, you know, if I thought about it more create more direct relationships um, but I think that in many ways, they both relate to um, what we bring, what we have brought to yoga before we started mm-hmm. and what we're trying either to continue or run away from or rebel against. Um, the fear, I think, in the animals and nonviolence and veganism question is that uh, if this is taught, I think a lot of teachers feel they'll lose students. hmm. Uh, that they'll lose students uh, and so with with other things as well and so because many people are making a living off teaching yoga and I'm, I'm not criticizing that I'm just saying that oftentimes um, We might make decisions in order to accommodate sensitivities of the, of the students and in a sense maybe that's necessary at first but because I don't think most people who walk into an, a yoga class as it's been presented In the West, in modern postural yoga, we're expecting that at the beginning of class, someone was going to ask what they had for lunch. Um, And so that's a fact of the present, you know, the way that yoga is presented and taught. And and that's okay. I think, though, that continually obscuring it and never acting like it's important gets into a very troublesome territory for someone like me, especially by people who continually invoke the tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Now with Ishvara and God, uh we have a situation where, you know, a lot of people come to yoga because they were trying to escape God. Yeah. And then all of a sudden all of a sudden you're bringing God back into it yeah. and think, "Oh my god, I came here to get away from that." And now you're just giving another name but adding a lot of similar baggage.
0: And so you think that motivation is behind all of these uh, sort of attempts to interpret Ishvara as archetypal yogi or you know which we hear a lot or 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 something else entirely but you know but
1: at well, the... let, me, let, me, let me just jump in I, sure. I don't think that's the case in the academic context right sure I, I don't think that's the case in the academic context i think more so um and, and we could also talk about how actually talking about Ishvara in say even patanjali inspired modern postural yoga isn't very necessary i mean the preferred route, or the most traveled route in the Yoga Sutra is not about God. So it's not as if if we leave out, if we leave out an emphasis on God in Patanjali-inspired yoga that we're hiding that much. Mm. Um, so, but, but I think we also leave it out in, say, modern postural yoga um, because of sensitivities of students. Though I don't think that's why it's challenged in an academic context whatsoever. It's for different reasons.
0: Okay. So, you know, what is what is Ishvara? So obviously, you know, Ishvara is not God. We this three-letter word God that that has a whole host of different resonances and connotations and and a whole rich history of baggage. It's not the same. You know, it's not the same concept. And and we can make this argument that, you know conceptions of God shift across culture. So what is the nature of God as Ishvara?
1: So, you know, we could could explode this conversation and get very um, complicated, and some of the work I do gives more of the backstory to this. But I think it probably helped to stay within the confines or the general orbit of the Yoga Sutra for this conversation. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. And, um, like, the word Ishvara itself can be used... Pretty much in two senses, it can be used as a kind of maybe in English like a lowercase lord with an L and a capital capitalized l lord and um, you could say that something like Shiva is a yogeshwara you know he's a lord of yoga, and in that sense, Lord doesn't mean god of yoga capital G god it means like a master of yoga um so you have it in a lowercase sense of a lord of yoga. And that's generally um, in earlier texts, in Upanishadic texts, and in, in and in Mahabharata, you see these uses. There are some kind of more idiosyncratic or outliers, but by and large is what you see. And you also see it used to refer to this kind of godhead, um, maybe some form of Vishnu, Narayana, Krishna. And... But by and large, in those cases, you will see it as something like parameshvara, parameshvara, mm-hmm. supreme god. Or, uh, I mean, you, you see it with purusha too, but like parameshvara is, a, is, a, is a, great, a good example. And so, but then at other times, even in the context of discussions about the same godhead, uh, the term just ishvara will be used. You'll also get uttama purusha, the foremost purusha the form of self will be used sometimes to refer. Um, and so I think that a lot of the initial kind of oddity about approaching the Yoga Sutra, and, and maybe you can speak to it from your own experience on this, is that A, the role of Ishvara or the, the function of Ishvara, at least on the surface in the Yoga Sutra, is a little strange to get one's handle on. Because, in a sense, devotion to God is optional. And I would like to talk about that optionality as well. Um, but also because Ishvara is referred to as a Purusha Vishesha, as a special or a, a unique, a special Purusha. And so people say, oh, Purusha, well, Purusha is just like an individual self. And so that just means that Purusha is just a self, but just like a little bit different, a little bit better. Um I think that that notion that it 's a diminutive Purusha vishesha, some kind of diminutive to to ishvara is an incorrect reading, and if we look at some of the Bhashya around those sutras, it becomes apparent um that that 's not the case, and especially on a Bhashya in the third chapter um which we could talk about as well,
0: yeah, I mean so on that Purusha vishesha because you know at the end of it um at the end of the the preface that you shared with me so generously, preface from this book that you're writing on Ishvara, um, you know, you said that you are you're going going to argue, I guess, in the course of the book that 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 Ishvara is very much uh, a, a godhead like Krishna, which I thought was, and I know I've heard this before from Edwin Bryant as well, and. And for me, from my understanding, and so I hope you can work this out for me, you know, as the Purusha Vishesha, I understand, like, it's, this, it's spe- Pur- Ishvara is special as a special Purusha in the sense that it was never enmeshed in Prakriti, right? It's always been outside Prakriti. But then yeah. when I think of, you know, Krishna, I think of Krishna as sort of like a Jesus character. Jesus was on earth, Krishna was, you know, Krishna has played here in the, you know this gunic realm um mm-hmm. do, you know engaged in different leelas and playing around and and so it's hard for me to reconcile the the idea that Ishvara is completely outside the kind of turnings of prakriti with Krishna which feels very much within prakriti, at least you know in in partly in terms of 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 its you know one form of its manifestation can you talk a little bit about that and how to reconcile that
1: Sure. I mean, there is a general problem. So I think we should uh, separate kind of claims that I'm making. I'm not trying to argue that the theology of the Yoga Sutra is satisfying.
0: Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that, that, that the notion of God makes sense when we pick at it. Okay. I'm arguing that Patanjali's conception of God is a supreme God kind of figure. Now, a problem and, and this is actually a problem even for Sankhya metaphysics, let's just say that it doesn't even talking about God is, is how is Purusha and Parakriti interacting at all? Period. Yeah. How do we have exactly immaterial material interaction, period? And there's examples used by commentators about magnets and iron and things <laughs> like this, but you know, you read it and you don't have to be a philosopher to read it and say this doesn't really seem satisfying. Yeah. So how can Ishvara interact with his excuse. I'm just saying his because Ishvara is a masculine noun. So um, with his devotees. How is not really my concern or the question. The question: <laughs> Does he? And does Patanjali think that he does? And in Sutra One Twenty Four on that one, the one you mentioned about klesha karma etc., um, the the commentary says that God bestows his anugraha his grace on devotees and lifts them out of samsara no Patan- patanjali's ishvara is an active ishvara i mean we might not have the stories that we have of krishna in that context and this is a sutra text it's not you know a yeah. it's not like purana yeah but the idea that uh, ishvara doesn't actively interact with devotees is not at all i don't think evidence in the text whatsoever however because there is this problem that we're talking about right now is how does this Ishvara who is supposedly completely other interact with his devotees have uh, uh, motivated certain commentators or, or certain scholars to say things like, there's a term uh, metaphysical sympathy or uh, or God inspires by sheer being, something like <laughs> okay. grace by sheer being, which is completely unsatisfying for someone like myself. And and it's not and, and so the the God in the Yoga Sutra is a God that catalyzes the chitta vritti nirodha of the aspirant. Mm. That's the other path. That's that's what that's what Ishvara's role is mm-hmm. is actually affecting the highest purushartha, the highest aim of the aspirant mm. um, in the text. Now, what I just claimed relies on my understanding of how Sutra 123, Ishvara Pranidana Adva, where that functions in the text. Um, but let's also, I mean, I know it's, it would require its own discussion, but let's not forget that in the second chapter, in the, in the discussion of the Niyamas, which includes Ishvara Pranidana, and then later on talks about what is the result of Ishvara Pranidana. The result is Samadhi Siddhir, the accomplishment of Samadhi. So even then, there is a kind of odd gesture to the fact that Ishvara pranidhana, devotion to God, itself results in the perfection of Samadhi. The problem with that is, well, if that's the case, why is that buried in the niyamas at the third stage and now I have Five and a half, or whatever, six and a half other limbs to go through, right? So that's a that's an odd part. My my point is just to emphasize the fact that for numerous reasons, I think Patanjali's uh, Ishvara is very much a bestower of grace. Hmm. Um, in
0: that sense. Yeah. So interesting. Awesome. Well, we're getting, we're right at the end of our time actually now. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. We've been talking about some stuff that we haven't covered on the podcast in a really kind of unique way. So I'm really grateful for your time. And, um, I just want to give you an opportunity now to, if there's anything else you'd like to share in terms of what we've talked about, if you feel like we, we didn't wrap up any particular topic or, or if there, if you just want to share anything about your work or where people can find you.
1: Um, well, no, I, I think I would just like to kind of circling back to our initial topic, think about that if we are are practicing yoga for the sake of discrimination, mm-hmm. self knowledge, honesty, and not to mention the number of other reasons people get involved in yoga. I think we can look at what nonviolence means and what it means vis-a-vis our habits, and I would seriously uh, start to consider our relationships with nonhuman animals. In a very, very serious way, and recognizing that we we kill 60 billion land animals every year, every year. I mean, in the United States alone, nine billion chickens are killed every year, um, for wow. absolutely no 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 need whatsoever. Um, and we ask ourselves whether or not that anumodita and you know potentially kritta karitana like on our behalf and approval, do we want to take part in these systems? As yoga practitioners, or just maybe ethical ethical persons, so I just think that we could uh, talk about that in yoga communities more, Yeah without fear of students getting scared away, and we'd we'd actually start to, te- to treat our each other like like adults, like reflective individuals, mm. um, who want to inspect, yeah, mental and daily lives,
0: yeah, and not be able to not be afraid to talk about the the challenging stuff, yeah. Thank you so much for ending on that note. That's great. So now, you know, is there any – you have an academia.edu site. Is there anything else you want to share about getting in touch with you?
1: Uh, uh, Individuals can find me um, through the University of California, Santa Barbara, Religious Studies Department. You you can also find me uh, on Facebook, um, which I, I largely use to talk about these issues all these stuff. Yeah, awesome. so and, and I welcome uh, I whenever I give I'll say one last thing whenever I've given talks Because I've given talks on animals nonviolence, and yoga in yoga studios um, And just kind of talk about these general issues and I I usually ask like please, you know, show me where I'm mistaken Where, Where is this mistaken or, or what can we learn? So I'm very open mm. to listening? to um, other other sides, but um, at the same time I wish we might want to think about the fact that if we we don't have a good answer to certain questions and certain justifications for our behavior, maybe we should think about changing those behaviors.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) All right, Jonathan, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much as well.